Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing in one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is only one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all over and through all and, all and in all. The book of Ephesians uh, turns on a dime. Right there, it was read for you. Uh, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The first three chapters uh, of this book are, are some of the highest treatise and uh, take on uh, how God is going to reconcile the world, how God is going to heal all things, how God is going to mend all things together in the world. And what happens is he begins, then turns it on a dime and says, therefore, in light of all that, here's how you live, how you walk in light of all of that. And almost the entire uh, rest of the book is just an unpacking of that through life in the church, namely relationships. That is, how do we uh, receive and respond to the idea of how God has done all of these amazing things and done all of this in Christ uh, to reconcile and begin to do healing? You begin to apply it in relationships in the church. And what we're going to do here for the next several months is on the heels of last week is we're going to go through the last part of the book of Ephesians and unpack this. What does it mean to be involved in the church? What does it mean for, for the impact of your relationships? And how does the gospel begin to unpack your relationships and your role in your life here in the church? Because, you know, at the end of your life, the sum of your life is almost the nature of how your relationships went. Ty Cobb uh, was considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, I think uh, most uh, baseball scholars called him one of the greatest hitters to ever live. Uh, he held the Major League Baseball record for the most hits um, up until 1985. And yet, uh, at the end of his life, despite all of his success, all of uh, his heroics, he died alone. In fact, he's quoted right before his death saying, where is everybody? The world is awful. Because despite all of his success, despite all of his accolades, he, had, he was just a horrible person. He, he, he hated people. He isolated people. He ran off relationships. He pushed everybody off. And despite all of his success, despite all of his accolades, it just fell, fell on hollow ears. It was just empty at the end of his life because of the way he'd managed his relationships. And you know, you're going to get to that point too. And there's almost nothing that will acutely oppress this for you more than the Christian life, and especially life in the church. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is, as we set the stage for this, is that as you come to Christianity and you begin to get involved in something like Journey South Bay, that life in the church is more than just Sunday morning. 
This is more than an event. You are called into a family. You're called into a life, into a relationship, into a community. And so I want to unpack that whole thing uh, under three headings with you this morning. One, you're called into a family. Secondly, there's a reason you're called into this family. And thirdly, from this text, Paul gives us the components of what it means to be called into this family. That's where we're going this morning. First, Paul tells us you're called into a family. He says this four times in the text in these six little verses that you have been called. In verse 2 and verse 4, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 1, you've been called to this. Uh, live in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 4, he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That is the Greek word kaleo, is the, is the word for call. And, and what it sort of means is it's in reference to something outside of you uh, speaking to who you are. And so what we're talking about here is the nature of identity, of, of somebody telling you who you are, uh, now what, what makes you you, what defines who you are, what composes your life here and now together in this time. And what Paul draws out is that the calling, the identity that you've been given has vertical and horizontal components. That is, there is a simultaneous call to who you are from connecting to God through faith in Christ, reconciling your sins, being forgiven at the cross, now in right communion with Him. There is that calling and there is a simultaneous calling to one another in life in the church. And it is not two steps. It is not you do one and then eventually get to the other. It is not one and you can live without the other. It is a simultaneous, you're connected this way and you're connected horizontally. And that's the calling of God. You think, think about it this way. If, if you are out in the, the Sahara in the middle of the day, no resources, and you begin to be so dehydrated and you're dying of thirst, do you need a cup or do you need water? I mean, if somebody gives you, you know, a, a drop of water and you've got no cup to put it in, it's useless. But if you have a cup with nothing to drink in it, it's useless. But what you need is a cup and the water to mend your dehydration. And the calling of God is saying, for you to be a reconciled human being, for what God is going to do in the world, there is a simultaneous calling this way and that way. And it's just basically, it's telling you this. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ can never be taken abstractly as if this is just a you and Jesus thing now. Uh, one uh, a church father said it this way, the church is our mother so that outside of her we may not be born into salvation nor may we truly experience Jesus. We cannot call God as our father without the church as our mother. Now, I know some of you uh, maybe have a Catholic background, and that's like uh, pringling all the hairs on your neck right now, as if to think that there is something um, that the church can give you, that if you don't attend this, then you're not a Christian, and if you go to church, then you are a Christian. That's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is that you cannot call yourself in communion with God 
if you are not in communion with other people. Because Paul says you have been called into that. You've been called into a family. And that's the first point. Secondly, there's a reason for this. Now, why have we been called into this? Why have we been called? Why why can't we just do the Christian life on our own? I'm thinking of these verses, uh, those first four through six, where Paul says this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, in order to see the reason that you were called into this, you got to follow the artistic style of Paul here. And, and, and hang with me for just one second, because here's what Paul is doing. It's really brilliant, and it's really artistic. In Jewish and Hebrew language, and in writing, numbers are an enormous deal. In fact, if you were here with us in the book of Revelation that we looked at last summer, this comes up over and over again, that numbers, when they are ever used in the Bible, are not just isolated events. They they are metaphorical and speak to all sorts of things. So in the Jewish-Hebrew language, one uh, always stood for the, uh, the symbol of unity, Uh, Two was always the number of differences or divisions. Uh, Three always stood for what is solid, what is permanent. Uh, Four is almost always the number of creation, as in the four corners of the earth. Seven is the perfect number. Now, in these verses, four through six, it's one sentence in the Greek. Paul does this. He uses the word one... He says one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord. One. He uses that one seven times. And then he uses the word all four times. So that you've been called, uh, uh, it is over all, the father of all, who's over all, who is through all, and who's in all. He's saying the foundation of our unity, the foundation of our theological unity is a perfect Trinitarian unity. And it speaks to the four corners of the world. Now, here's what he's saying in a nutshell. Paul is saying this. The creation itself will never be fully unified and will never be fully healed until God has unity in the church. That is, what God has given the church in order to be unified, is the way that the world is going to be healed, reconciled, and unified together. If you look back earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul says something astonishing at the end of chapter 1, where he says that there is an incomparable power for those who believe. And the incomparable power is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And he says that power that raised Jesus from the dead is actually more powerful than anything in heaven. It's more powerful than any ruler or dominion in this world. And he says that power was given to Jesus to subdue all things under him for the church. He says like the greatest power in the world is given 
to Jesus for you. And what Paul is saying, that power, it is, it is yours. And it comes alive, hear this, when you begin to be unified in the church, he says that's the most powerful thing in the universe. Not a war, not an army, not an argument, but people coming together in unity in the name of Jesus. The night before Jesus is to be betrayed, excuse me, when he's about to be betrayed, the night before he's crucified, He's in the garden, and John records this long prayer that he has. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's the last things that we get for Jesus from Jesus before he's going to die for you. And he wants to pray all these things. And one of the things he prays in John 17, in verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. On the night before Jesus was to die, here's what he's praying, that you would be one, that you would come with other human beings and you would be one. And he's, why? What's the reason? Because when that happens, he says, that's how the world is going to be healed. Now, hang with me for like one, one minute, because this is the most deep theological part I'm going to talk about for a, for a second. To be a Christian is not just to acknowledge that a God exists, and it's not just to get your life together, and it's not just to start to become a little bit more moral. To be a Christian is to have the very Trinity alive in you. See, here, here's what we get a little bit in this text, and you can get it from all over the New Testament. But God, the God of Christianity, is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God in essence and being. And the way that they always relate is in ultimate covenant commitment and in perfect vulnerability. So it looks like this. The Father is, he, nothing he treasures more than the Son. God the Father, his, his greatest possession, his greatest prize, his greatest love is the Son. But then you, you read Jesus and you hear Jesus talking all the time about saying, I'm doing this so that you could know my Father. So that you can know my Father sent me. I am doing all of this to give you access to my Father. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to give you my spirit. Because when you, when you have my spirit, you'll actually have more of me than when I'm here. But then you learn about the spirit, and the spirit's whole job is just to say, look at Jesus. How great is Jesus? How wonderful is the Son? And you get this picture that all the persons of the Trinity are saying, I'm here to show you them, to love them, to sacrifice for them, to give for them, and I'm ultimately committed to you. And Paul says, that exists in you. And when you believe, you become a part of that. So that, friend, friend this is way more than just whether or not you, ex you think a God exists. This, this unbelievable intimate commitment you begin to partake in.
so that when you become a Christian and you get called into a family, what it means is you begin to live that out alongside one another so that what the gospel does is it pulls you into relationships with people where the dividing lines of the world like race and classism and success begin to bleed away and you live in relationships with people where it makes no sense outside of that Trinitarian reality being true in you. And when you come together with these people and you say, I'm here to love you. I'm here so that you can know this person. I'm here so you can get in relationship with these people. And you're committed and you're living out that Trinitarian love. Paul is saying there is no greater witness to the God who is like that than when you live that. And you know what? Simultaneously, when you walk away or you have a disagreement and you don't want to work through it and you just ghost a community or you, you say, I, they don't meet my desires anymore and you walk away from this you give no greater case for atheism than when you do that. Imagine it this way. Look, if you're, if you're about to die of frostbite and you come up and there's one burning coal, I mean, it, it maybe for a second can help you. But just by itself will do little to nothing to heal your body. But if you take that same little coal and you pile it on several others, what will happen? A fire will come up. And all the coals together, coming into one, will create a fire that will warm you and heal you and nourish you back to health. And Paul is saying, when you come together, that's what it's like. Look, the reason you have got to be called into this family and you've got to participate and be committed and join in is because you have no idea what can happen to people around you. Look, I, I know that there's all kinds of reasons to not be here and to not get really involved. I mean, I, there was a lot of jokes this week about um, the Rams Super Bowl parade. Because uh, I love this around the country. Just indulge me for like 30 seconds. Look, when like Philadelphia or Cleveland has a Super Bowl parade and there's like a million people there, you know what? Because there's nothing else to do in those cities. <laughs> but like this week alone, I mean, like there's a, there's a PGA Tour event, you know, the Lakers played a huge game Wednesday night, we hosted the Super Bowl last week, there's countless, con I mean, it's, there's a lot of reasons why you, what you else could be doing. And so it comes to a Sunday and sometimes you're like, well, what would I really miss? Have you ever considered that other people would be missing out on you? That there's somebody's life who's falling apart, who needs healing, and what it takes for them to be healed is for you to come here and to be committed. Listen, fr friends, the reason isn't practical. It's eschatological. It's theological. It's the healing of the world of why you got to be here. 
But Paul gives us, as he's going to talk about the church, he says, you're called into this. The reason is for the healing of the world. Now, thirdly, what are the components of that? Look, if, if unity and healing is this big, what will make us healed? Well, look what he says in verse 2 and 3. He says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Look, I, I've been doing um, campus ministry for 15 years. And every year, this is, this is how 20-year-olds think. They say, you know what would really be amazing for this campus is if we all got together and we just did one big worship service. If, if that would happen, surely that would change this campus. And you know what, we've done it, and it never happens. I mean, one of the ideas we have of unity is if, if unity can do that, should we just have one big mega Los Angeles church? Should we get rid of like Denominations, should we get of all, rid of all those things and just create one merging church? Now, I, I know the history of this church, and I have to tell you, I, it, it's actually really beautiful and very unique how two different churches can come together and form one body. But I, but I don't think structural unity is what Paul has in mind for how people will see and want to know him. I mean, Google ha- owns everything. And, and Amazon has merged with everyone. And, and I don't think the world is looking at those companies and going, behold, how they love one another. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're threatened by that. Look, the components of unity, what will draw the world in is, is not just let, let's make one thing. It's actually a little bit more intuitive than that. And there's three of them here that Paul kind of gives us. That if if these become true for us, it will catch the eye of the world. Unity is built on a common identity. It's built on the sharing of life, and it's built on the sacrificial purpose. Let me show you what I mean. A, A common identity. He says, look, walk in a manner that's worthy Come together, answer your calling together with humility and gentleness. That is, when you come together, whatever could possibly identify you, whatever you can stand on in this world, leave it at the door. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is um, addressing divisions in the Corinthian church. And he's talking about how nobody can get along how there's this party and this party and these people want to be in charge and these people think this is the best way to go. And he says the root of all of your division is one thing, it's pride. It's finding something that is important about you, that distinguishes you from that group over there. And you know what, practically, this, you know how this comes out. It's, well, those people, they don't quite get it. Or those people are not as fun. Or those people think we should be doing this. Or those people have an opinion about this. And, and, and Paul says, look, if that's what you're standing on, unity is impossible. 
Because what it requires is humility. When C.S. Lewis talks about humility and mere Christianity, he says humility is not somebody who, who can't take a compliment, who's like, oh, shucks, no, not me, somebody else. He says what humility is is somebody who will seem like they're curious about you and interested in you. Because what humility is, is it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And the reason you can do that is because what the gospel is, is it says you're a sinner saved by grace. You're more broken than you ever could possibly fathom, but you're more loved than you could ever dare know. You're so broken, the Son of God had to die for you. And that is to be your identity in, the, in the, the doors through which you walk into this family with. And if that's how you come in, that you're so broken, the Son of God had to die for you, what do you have over other people? What do you possibly have that you brought to this table? Nothing. You brought nothing. Nothing in your hands you bring. Simply to the cross, you cling. I, I heard a pastor tell a story that he, he met this immigrant from Bosnia who had uh, decided uh, as he got his American citizenship that he was going to be a Democrat. And he said that, um, he goes, man, Democrats hate Republicans. And he said, but you know what? If, if, I, uh, if I meet another Bosnian Republican, I'm not going to hate them. And the minister said, well, why? And he said, uh, because we're one. Because we're from Bosnia. We've been through hell. We've been through Life and death together. That, that's way more defining than, than some sort of political belief that we're going to have here in the United States of America. Look, to be a Christian, you've been through the life and death of Jesus together. No matter, no matter what somebody thinks about politics, no matter what somebody thinks about what should be happening in the church or what direction we should go, that's way more defining. Look, and the component of unity is when people say, I will be marked with that kind of humility. They say, I will be defined simply by the way Jesus loved me in my brokenness. Way more than my race. Way more than my political party. Way more than my class. Way more than my social interests. And when people come together with that, that's when unity begins to happen. But the com another component of unity is, is a, uh, a shared life. He says, do this with patience and bearing with one another in love. I asked some college students about this. Uh, do you, what do you think about the Bible calling you to bear with one another in love? And almost all of them said this. They said, you know, well, we should probably do that but there's, there's a point where we can't do that anymore. And I, I asked, well, what, what point is that? And they said, well, well when it gets away, in the way of what you're going to do, of what you're here to do, of what you want to do in life. And so we started to talk about wh what that line was. And everybody wanted to debate, well, it's pr it may be when it gets in the way of a, of a, of a test or way, when it gets in the way of your internship or it gets in the way of your time to recharge and, and I just brought up the question, well, what about the idea of what you want to do? What do you want to do? And they talked about their career, their aspirations. And I just said, hey, what if the what you want to do 
is actually meant to be in relationships and bearing with one another. And the conversation stopped right there. Look, if you come into a church and you come in here and your main goal in life is to get something out there, to accomplish something, and you come into the church and hopes for a little bit of sprinkling of encouragement, a little bit of sprinkling of life, it's going to be impossible to be unified. Because what this says is to come in here is to say, I am committed to bearing your problems. It's to be a part of a family that says, your problems are my problems. And if you don't know that, then when you go through something hard, one of two things is going to happen. On the one hand, when you go through something hard, you're going to put all of the burden on one person, and it will crush that person. Look, if I stand on this chair and I invite one of you to come down, and I say, I'm going to fall, and you've got to catch me, I'm probably going to crush you. But if 10 of you come and I say, I'm going to fall, it'll be heavy, it'll be difficult, but you'll be able to catch me. If you go through something hard in your life and you have the expectation that just your spouse or just your child or just your sibling can bear the burden of that difficult season, you're going to crush them. And what you need is a community, is a family, is a group of people who say, we will bear that burden. But if you also don't know that, that there's the bad thing, is that you can go through it all alone. And people go through it all alone saying this, well, I didn't want to burden anyone. And you know what that is? It's pride. Saying, I feel like what I'm going through would be too much and too hard for other people, and I can't bear that. But this text tells you that a community is meant to exist to bear your burdens. The image is as if that ceiling is coming down and one person is trying to hold it up. It's as if everybody comes around and says, we will not let you hold this up on your own. We're gonna come underneath you and hold it up together. And to what degree? It says to do it with patience. I talk to my kids about this all the time. Patience is a Greek word, macrothemia. Macro is the prefix big, mega, large. Thumia is where we get the word thermometer from. And what patience means is to have a huge macro thermometer, to have a high boiling point. Now, most of us want to bear people's burdens until that flicker comes on. And then it's like, okay, this is too much. But what Paul says is, bear one another's burdens more than a simmer. Amongst all of you, create a high boiling point. That means let somebody be difficult amongst you. Let somebody not get it for a while. Let somebody struggle through this corporately. Share their life together. And when you share it that way, friends, that will, be, that will give life to unity like nothing else. Look, at the components of unity are a common identity, a shared life, 
and a sacrificial purpose. He says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity. Now, this is fascinating, and this is, this is the end, so hang with me on this. You notice this? Paul never, he, never, he doesn't command us to be unified. He doesn't say be unified. He says you are unified. God in his spirit has given us everything for unity and has bonded us together. And he says, you, be eager to maintain that. Pursue it. It's as if we need to identify that, recognize that, and make it a priority that nothing is going to come between us. Now, a lot of you live in a family or you have a work relationship of some kind that will make sense of this. It's not long after a community comes together that people have opinions, people have desires, people have disagreements, and they're never on the same page. And how we typically navigate that and how the world navigates that is to say, if you don't meet my desire, if you don't meet what I long for, then I'm out. I'm going to leave. You either cross this line or I'm done. You either get the ministry going in the way that I need it to be. You either get the music in the way I needed it to be. You either get the community life in the way that I have experienced it and wanted it, or I'm out. But Paul says, be eager to maintain that. The word maintain is, is a word that we get um, the idea of reservations from. It's as if he's saying, be eager to make a reservation for unity. Now, now think about this. When you're on like vacation and you're going, what do, we, what do you want to do this afternoon? Well, we could go hiking, we could go to the beach for a couple hours. I'd like to go see this park or this museum. And, and one of the, you says, well, we have a reservation at 6 p.m. You know what you do is you say, well, we can fit this in. We can't fit that in. Or we can do this for a little while, but we've got we to gotta leave because we've got a dinner reservation. Paul says make unity so important. Being together and being one, such a priority that your desires, your wishes, your disagreements will always have that reservation out there that says we've got to build it around staying together. And no matter what, at some point, one of us is going to have to sacrifice. Like, I would have liked to have stayed at this museum longer, but I'm going to sacrifice staying this because we got that reservation at that restaurant I want to be at. And Paul says, unity in the church ought to have that kind of priority. And look, friends, when, when the early church did this, it overtook the Roman Empire a group of people who didn't let classes or race come between, but only in the identity of Christ, and said, your problems are my problems, and said, no matter what, nothing gets in between this. And they said, when you do this, the empire is going to be overturned, and you know what? It was. We got to make that happen here. You got to make that happen. You got to be a part of making that happen. And you know what? You have got to be the recipient of the blessing of that. Called into a family. Let that be this church. Let's pray. Father.
um, there's nothing like this in the world. There's nothing like this. And we pray, Lord, knowing of the wounds and the pain the church has caused. And we ask that by your spirit, it would not be um, so much that we would throw out the baby with the bathwater, but we would again, Lord, rebuild and renew our vision of the church and say, being together, being one, Fulfilling your prayer request, Lord, is the way we're going to heal and heal one another. Would you do that through us? In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.